it's almost like a new period of human history, like the Enlightenment, will imagine an entire design renaissance. So the internet is not evolving at random. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. Uh, so everybody acknowledges that these are valuable entities. They provide value in our life. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. But there's also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be a continuation of our study looking at some of the more macro aspects of this comparison between the time of the Reformation and the current times that we are currently living in. So what I want to highlight today is mainly things related to war and business models. And so those are kind of our key subjects today as I continue on where we left off last time. So last time I did get into a little bit about war and how propaganda is used in war and getting people on board with going to war and continuing that cycle. I did give some examples of propaganda campaigns related to war. I'm not sure if I got into this, but I have in the past the fact that the most effective war is an invisible or intangible enemy, so to say. If you look at the historic time period we are referencing, that would be something like heresy or a war against the devil or a war against witchcraft or any of these more broad aspects. You've also got then and now an aspect of racism where it's a war against the evil Turks or it's a war against uh, more modern racism um, where a lot of people are more in line with the civil rights movements and things like that. Or other modern examples would be terrorism or climate change, or we have a current war against disease. They're calling it the invisible enemy. And that would be the war against COVID-19 or any other pandemic uh, to come after this. And so the point is just that if you have this intangible, invisible enemy, then it's very easy to control that war and how people feel about it and what people are willing to do in conjunction with it because it is more of a construct. It's not just that you have this physical enemy, these specific people or leaders that you take out on the ground and you know exactly what that looks like. You know what the war looks like. You know what winning and losing look like. Instead, these are wars that don't get won. You can't defeat an ideology. You can't defeat an idea or a construct. That's just not something that's very possible. And so the scope of a war like that or the amount of influence that propaganda and creating a narrative and pushing a narrative has on something like this is very extreme. And so that's more what we are dealing with today with most of these modern wars on things like terrorism, climate change, disease, things like this. 
one of the next questions would be, how does war affect these macro shifts that we're talking about in this series, this season right now? And what we need to look at is what is the effect of war? And we can look historically first. So what happened through war during the time of the Reformation? Well, the main war in that period was the Thirty Years' War. What was happening during the Thirty Years' War? Well, it was a period of consolidation. As we've talked about before, that's when the nobility really consolidated a lot of their power, their control over certain regions, and you had the beginnings of nation-states and countries that came out of that all through this consolidation, and it was consolidation through war. You had the fact that the state gained land and power through religious debates. Now, like I just referenced, you have this invisible enemy of fighting for a cause, an ideology of religion. You are spreading Christianity, the true Christianity, against these heretics over here. And so you have this invisible enemy ideology that is getting pushed behind the scenes, but then you actually have true real warfare going on. And what is the effect of that true real warfare? Well, it is consolidation. And even though it may be masked as a religious issue and a moral issue, a just war, we have had plenty of examples of those in more modern times, the real result and what's really going on is just political consolidation. That was what was going on then, and that's how the nation-state really got going to um, be on the road to where it is today, and that is what happened then. So if you look at now, the comparison I'm making to the nobility, the noble class of that time would be the corporate world today with corporations, specifically uh, certain industries. So uh, another little parallel here I thought of actually earlier today was just that If you look at the noble classes, it's not that all of the nobility won out. There were only a few families that really dominated coming out of the 30-year war period. So you can look at a family like the Habsburgs and their dynasty and how far that stretched and the intermarriages with other noble families and how that all worked out. Even families like the Medici, for example, that I've referenced a lot, uh, they ended up marrying into some other noble families, some ruling families into the royal class. And the Medici dynasty itself uh, pretty much died out and they were not a big factor But the ruling families they married into, specifically into the French royal court, those families did very well. And so there was this consolidation of family power into a few ruling families that ruled the majority of Europe in some way or another. And a lot of that happened through a series of marriages. And so this would be more voluntary merges and consolidation that way. And then also through warfare, like I mentioned, and consolidation through force. And we have a similar thing today in the corporate world. A lot of corporations are merging. You have certain people that are on the boards of 20 different major S&P 500 companies. And so you have this almost like this ruling class that has influence over a broad array of different industries, different companies, different corporations. And so you see 
some of this consolidation through voluntary means, through buyouts and mergers and board of directors and different ways. But then there is also the consolidation through force. You have corporations using the state to enact certain regulation and certain restrictions to keep out their competition or to improve their own business. They use government contracts and different ways similar to this. Or you have unwanted buyouts where companies are basically forced to sell out or conditions are made such that a company does not do very well and pretty much their only viable option is to sell out to their competitor. And so you have these issues of force. You even have warfare in general with the military industrial complex and the corporations that are benefiting from that. You have the cyber warfare that goes on and the companies that are benefiting from that. Uh, Look at where does Amazon make a lot of their money. It is through government contracts. It is not through selling things online. They don't make nearly as much money on that. Profit margins are minuscule. But look at the profit margins on their government contracts. Not so minuscule. That's where a lot of their money comes from. And so we see this consolidation. Look at all the companies and different industries that Amazon has gotten into and bought out or Google or Facebook. They have really started to dominate and you have a handful of companies and certain industries that are really a dominant force in the corporate world. It's it's not that all corporations are really starting to gain influence and power and mingling and meshing with the state more and more. It's that a handful of companies and a handful of industries are really starting to dominate more and more through consolidation and through using the state, just like the state at the time the noble classes used religion, and that would be the realm of the church, the same parallel plays out now, except instead of noble classes, it's the corporation. Instead of the church, it's the state. And corporations are consolidating and using the state, just like the noble classes consolidated and used the religious movement and religious institution as well. A lot of the forced gains of the corporate world today are not the same as the forced gains of the noble classes in previous times. That was through physical warfare. Today, it's more through economic warfare. And there are plenty of examples we could go into there, but I am not going too deep into that. Just this concept of economic war and using the state and trade barriers and uh, government contracts, like I've mentioned, things like this. It is more economic means where you are forcing a buyout or you're forcing a contract or forcing competition not to be able to come in through regulatory and economic means. It's not actual physical warfare. Google's not sending an army out. That's not the way it's working. This is economic war, which is the parallel to physical war of the Reformation time period. Now, with the spread of war and an increase in the size of these different proto-nation states that were happening with the consolidation of the noble classes and these nation states starting to form in some areas, it was a very early version of a nation state. And some, it was pretty much a nation state already. So it depends on what specific area you're looking at. But for a more broad view, as the nation state was starting to consolidate, gain more power, gain more territory, you started to have large territories controlled by a more centralized bureaucracy under the noble classes. That was kind of what was going on, especially through all this warfare. You had a lot more consolidation. And with that, 
you really had an increased scale of war with consolidation and centralization overall. So whereas it was very decentralized and this lord would um, go to war against that lord and they'd have to raise an army and raise money and use money, they couldn't just print it off and they couldn't just get their standing army because they didn't have one. And so warfare looked very different before this time period. But as we get into the idea of a nation state and a standing army and forced taxation, things of this nature, the scale of war went way up. So you have this concept that, well, if you have these strong countries uh, that cover large territories, then you're not going to have as much war because we can control that better. Well, maybe you won't have as much fighting and little bickering squabbles, but the war you do have is going to be at a mass scale with mass casualties and mass atrocities. And so that is the trade-off that we have going on there. So if you look at modern economic battles, we see that it's not just uh, some small companies that are fighting against each other for a little bit of market share. It's these massive international corporations that are doing massive economic warfare against each other. And the casualties are pretty major. If you look at things like censorship and data collection and surveillance and different things like these, these are how control is spread in the modern day. And that is what corporations are using. Data is the new oil is a phrase that many people say. Data is information has always been actually um, more valuable than money because you can make money with information. You can make information with money to an extent, but not to the same extent that you can make money with information. And so that's kind of the way it works there. And information is the way that corporations are doing things. Now, if you look at the scope of these things, they have become global. They've become international to a much greater extent than they once were. Like I mentioned, consumerism, data collection, drugs, um, pesticides, it doesn't matter what industry you get into, agricultural, big pharma, big tech, all of them have become global industries with global globally orchestrated policies and mega corporations that are international in scope providing all of the related goods and services and highly influencing the related legislation and regulation in many different countries, not just their country of origin, but all around the world because they operate all around the world. That's the way this kind of stuff works. One example of a group that I have researched recently with the uh, coronavirus pandemic that has been going on. And I've mentioned them in one of those uh, special episodes that I did where I did the quick series about coronavirus and the pandemic and things related to what I'm talking about in this series here. Well, one group I mentioned was the Gavi Vaccine Alliance. And that is a group of different corporations, nonprofits, people like that. You've got things like the Gates Foundation and some ties to the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, some other groups like that. But their main goal is to, quote, create healthy markets for vaccines. And that is what they do. They go around globally creating healthy markets to sell vaccines in. And they get different countries on board. They get different organizations, the World Health Organization or International Monetary Fund, 
uh, people like this, they get them on board with these types of policies that are very pro-vaccine. They get regulations passed in different countries, especially third world countries, to mandate these things. And then guess what? You have a healthy market for these vaccines and the people associated can make lots of money. And so that's kind of the way it works. But it is global in scope with a lot of influence and power in the corporate hands and in these global organizations. And so I've talked about that a lot, about how that's the shift that's going on, that the eventuality, if all of this plays out in parallel the way everything else has so far, will be some sort of technocratic system, some sort of technocracy. And in that, that comes out of the corporate world and these overall global organizations. And so that is the root of this, just like the nobility was the root of the nation state, the nobility and the bureaucracy. Shifting gears a bit, I do want to talk a little bit about a specific business model that could be applied to a lot of these types of things that we're talking about here. And that would be a business model that you can see examples of in big oil, in Microsoft, in social media, and potentially we'll see it in the future as well as things progress. But let's start with big oil and I'll just kind of lay out a few aspects of how oil became so dominant and made so much money. And then we'll move on with a similar business model for these other examples. So with big oil, when oil first began to be extremely popular, it was starting to be used in just about everything, everything from plastics to gasoline. And what happened was big companies like Standard Oil, the Rockefeller Foundation, these types would go to third world countries and as a gesture of goodwill and charity, they would donate a lot of things, give them a lot of training and basically give them this leg up into this new industrialized world and help them to get into it. Now, this sounds really good. It was very good for their PR, made oil look good in general. But the problem was that it was a bit of a razor and razor blade model here because everything that these third world countries were starting to use as they became more industrialized were all oil-based. And so all of the equipment they used used gasoline or diesel and oil for their engines. You had all of the new products as they got into the consumerist markets. They were a lot of times packaged and used a lot of plastics, which were all petroleum-based as well. They would bring in things like vaccines and pharmaceuticals and get their healthcare up to a more modernized standard. And guess what? All of the those were often based on petroleum and oil-based products. You have fertilizers as well for your crops that are oftentimes based in the same thing. And basically, the result is that even though a lot of these things were done from a nonprofit perspective, a charity perspective, to bring these third world countries into a modernized industrial space... The result ended up being that they were very reliant on oil and purchased a lot more oil. If not directly, they would do so indirectly by buying things like gasoline and plastics and some of these chemicals and different things like these that are all oil-based. And so that ended up being a big boon for the oil industry as it progressed and as these third world countries became more modernized and it was good for business for big 
oil, and they ended up dominating a lot of these markets, making billions of dollars and having a lot of influence worldwide because of this approach that they took to dominating the market. Now, if you look at the Microsoft operating system, how did they make money and how did they go about this? Well, to begin with, Microsoft gave their operating system away for free. And that seemed good to everybody. We all had the ability to use our computers and manage things on them in a way that was user-friendly and accessible. And everybody had access to that. Everyone who got a computer could use the Microsoft operating system for free. It was already on there. And that was great for everyone. Everyone was happy. Now, what ended up happening was that once you had the Microsoft operating system, you would need to buy software and games and different things like this that would operate with the Microsoft operating system. So things that were compatible with it. And so you ended up with this secondary market where a lot of things required a Microsoft operating system in order to work. And if you had the Microsoft operating system, that's what you were used to. That's what you were good at. You knew how to work it. Well, you would want other products that worked well with it and that operated in a similar way. And so you had this secondary market that was created. Not only that, but all of a sudden there are all these viruses that started to come out and attack computers. And what did you need to do? Well, you needed to buy virus protection software or you needed to pay for updates later on. Um, nowadays, you have things like cloud storage that you usually get a little bit for free. You get hooked on it. And that's something that you rely on, that you use. It's convenient. And then you end up paying for a a certain amount of storage, usually monthly or yearly. The same goes for just about everything with this model. So people basically got hooked on the operating system that was giving, given to them for free. And that ended up getting people hooked to the way that it operated and all the surrounding products and all the different methods and everything connected with it and basically brought this giant market share over to Microsoft. If you look at social media, there is a similar thing here where the social media companies will use Facebook as a good example. It's free. You could log on to Facebook for free. You didn't have to pay anything. It was open for everyone. And so a lot of people jumped on Facebook and it became popular. Again, it was a free system. It was easy to use. It was user-friendly. It made a lot of sense. It was fairly intuitive. Just about anyone could use it. And over time, your grandma was on it. Your parents were on it. Your kids are on it. Everybody's on it. And that was the way that it worked. Well, once everybody was hooked on it, Facebook still had to make money. They created this giant market. Now, how do they profit off of it? Well, it's with data. And so as I've mentioned before, data is the new currency. It is the new oil. And data information is how Facebook makes money. They take people's information and they sell it to other companies. Or they use your personal information, your habits, things like this, things on your page, and they create a profile. Then they will sell the ability to show ads to certain profiles of customers. And they can be very accurate with this because of all the data and information they have. And therefore, they make a lot of money on advertising revenue where the advertising companies will pay Facebook. And because Facebook is so good at this, and they've gotten so much data 
out of the population that they serve, they can target these ads extremely well and be very effective. And so that ended up being the system that was created for Facebook, where they created this platform. It was free. They handed it out. Everybody was happy. And they end up raking in all the money and all the data later on as people got hooked on these systems, started using them more and more, integrated them into different things. Now you can log on to different places using Facebook. You can use Facebook Messenger to send messages. You can make phone calls on Facebook. You can do all this stuff. They're coming out with their own cryptocurrency, all of these different things. And it was all based off of this same model of giving away something for free, and getting them hooked on a system, and then you profit off of that later on. Now, if we look a little bit more futuristic, I can give some examples of things that could potentially happen. And we'll pretend like this is a short sci-fi story, if you want to go that way. But they are things that are potentially possible. So let's look at vaccines. Now, there is work and research being done on programmable vaccines. And the idea would be that you would receive a vaccine, and it would basically be a platform in a sense. It would be a vaccine that would go into your body, and it could remotely be programmed to act in a certain way, to release certain things, to do certain things with your body. I do not know all the science behind it, but the research is currently being done, and it has been discussed many times that is being worked on. And so imagine, what if they do get this type of vaccine going? And so then, what would you expect? Well, they would probably give it away to for free to everyone, and everyone would be able to get this unlimited vaccine, this universal vaccine that could be applied to so many different things. It would be the latest and greatest thing for public health worldwide. Everybody would be on it. But then guess what? You would have these viruses that would start showing up and, hey, you need an update. And maybe you would pay for that directly or maybe your government would pay for that and they would pay whatever company was associated with creating this update to the vaccine or whoever created the vaccine itself. You never know how that would play out. But the point is someone would pay for giving out these updates, for keeping it up to date, for doing the research and development for all of these things. There would be billions, if not trillions of dollars into this and the entire world, and I know that's a bit of an exaggeration, but probably 80% of the world would be on something like this if it was created and given away for free. I would put that in quotes, free. But um, roughly, everybody would get on it and it would be paid for. There would be a lot of money that would come through the things like updates and through new versions of this universal vaccine that might be able to handle different things and different features and different range of viruses or diseases and things like this. And you could see how something like that could be played out where people would become reliant. They would assume that this is a normal thing that, hey, everybody gets this universal vaccine and then they would basically be hooked on that concept, on that idea. And with something like a vaccine, you could get an entire population reliant on it, period, because if 
things went through their natural course, you have diseases that go around. Let's say a virus goes around a given population. Um, ideally, what you would do is isolate the people that are at the highest risk levels. Then you let it spread to the normal population. It goes around. Most people get it. They build up immunity, and you have what's called herd immunity. Then you can reintroduce those risky small segments of the population, and they will be fairly safe. Everybody will be fairly safe, and life continues on for that population. Well, what happens is if you have something like this, where you have a programmable vaccine, then as soon as a virus is detected, an update could get sent out to everyone that has the vaccine. Let's say that is 80% of the population. Well, the other 20% is screwed. There's no such thing as herd immunity. That virus might get passed along, and these people have no antibodies built up. They, Their bodies, their immune system is not ready to handle all this stuff, and they would then obviously be shunned as the uh, dirty, disease-spreading segment of the population, and that would probably not go very well for those people. But everyone that had this virus that could be programmed and updated would be safe from the beginning and have no problem whatsoever. And they would look at the other people like they're crazy. And yeah, we could go on. But the point is people would get hooked on this system, this platform, and there would be a lot of money in it on the back end. And not only money, but control. And that is a much bigger deal. You saw that with oil. You control the oil. You control a lot more than just the oil. You control data. You control a lot more than just the data. You control social media and what people post and what people see then you control a lot more than that little bit of content. Control is usually the ultimate goal. And so you can make a bunch of money and get a lot of power and control. Hey, that sounds pretty good for most of these types of groups and companies that we're discussing here. I am going to end this episode here. I did not get into the business models and more into that kind of stuff, which I feel is very interesting. I actually did continue to talk and I am saving what I recorded for that for the next episode. And I'll get into those things, the business models and the overall evolution of decentralization movements, everything from the church to things like the internet and how these could potentially look in the future as things shift to more technocratic power versus political power and playing out these parallels from this standpoint. It is very interesting. And so we'll get into that next episode. Thank you very much for listening. I am still interested in hearing feedback about these shorter episodes, whether you like them or not. Again, like I said, I, I could keep going and easily just have an hour-long podcast, which is what most of them used to be. But I did have people that said that was too long. They couldn't do that. They would listen if it weren't for the fact that the episodes were so long. So that's why they're shorter now. Uh, but if there are enough of you that you know definitely really liked getting more content at a time, then let me know and I can adjust. I can do different things. I can give different options. We'll see how that goes. But definitely give me some feedback on that as time goes on, as you hear a few of these episodes and let me know if it's something that you like, don't like, don't care, um, want me to shift in some way. Uh, please give me the feedback there. I do also want to give a shout out that is very delayed. Um, there was a post on Reddit a while ago. This is probably a month ago or more 
where someone was asking about information on coronavirus and podcasts related to that. And um, I had mentioned that I had done a short series on the coronavirus from the standpoint of economics and politics and these kinds of things and corruption, conspiracy, all these types of things. I covered those in that three-part series that I did. If you're listening to this, hopefully you had listened to that because ideally you listen to every episode, but I know that's not always the case. But I do want to mention this because I had I had said on there that, you know, hey, I did the series. Here's the link. If you're interested in it. And I got multiple responses, two or three different responses from people that said that they loved that series. One of them said that it was the best series on COVID-19 that they had come across. And um, I don't know if I'd go that far, but thank you very much. I do want to say thank you. I take that kind of as a review. I think there were three different people that made comments on that. And since Reddit is just about the only place that I do anything related or similar to marketing, that's probably why people know what my show is on there. It's not because I am one of the most popular podcasts out there. I definitely am not. But there are people that know about it. And it was um, something that I really appreciated. It made me feel really good that these total strangers to me um, stood up for me and uh, recommended my show to other strangers on the internet. It's definitely something that makes me feel good. And I really appreciate that. So I do try to say thank you when someone leaves a review or makes a comment or sends in an email. And um, so I want to say thank you for those Redditors. If you are still listening, thank you very much. I really do appreciate that. That is something that keeps me going, that I know that people are listening, that people enjoy the content, that you're getting something out of it. That's what I want. Which leads me to my next thank you, and that would be to the patrons, those that are supporting this content, hopefully because it is content they think should be out there and accessible for everyone. And so they are willing to financially support it so that I can continue to do it and be encouraged to do so. And I greatly appreciate that as well. If you feel that way and you are not a patron, then consider going to patreon.com. The link is in the show notes and checking out my Patreon page and some of the different things you have access to on there and the different levels and different perks that you can get. But just overall, hopefully you would do it just because you feel this content is good and important and you want everyone to have access to it and you want to help me and support me in getting it out there. I'm not pocketing this money. I by no means make a profit on this podcast. Uh, But I do greatly appreciate if you will help in paying for the hosting fees, the equipment, the different things that I have and the needs that I have. And hey, maybe eventually I will get paid for some of the time at least that I dedicate towards making this podcast. That would be wonderful. But that's not really what I'm asking for here. Um, Basically, just if you want to support the content, then please do consider signing up on Patreon and becoming a patron there. Other than that, thank you for just being a listener. That is greatly appreciated. I can see the download numbers. And so I do know that there are many people downloading these episodes and listening to them. And I greatly appreciate that. And thank you again to anyone that is getting on and leaving a rating or a review. The ratings have gone up somewhat and reviews. I have not seen another one since the last time I mentioned them, uh, but I don't actually check all that often. So uh, next time I check, if there are any new ones, I'll give a shout out to you guys as well. And thank you very much. Thank you for all of these different kinds of support. They all mean a lot. They are all important. So please do consider leaving a rating, leaving a review, uh, posting something on social media, joining the Patreon support team, uh, sending me an email, all of these different things you can do to connect and support. I greatly appreciate it. So thank you for listening. I'm out. Peace. 
This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.